Hey, what's good, fam? We appreciate you tuning in to the South City Church Podcast. It's our prayer that as you hear the better story of Jesus, you might experience more of his redemptive power in every square inch of your life. Hey, we're a church plant. We benefit greatly from outside support. So if you'd like to partner with our ministry here, you can go to southcityrva.com slash give and join us in seeing strangers made family in Christ in Richmond and beyond. God bless and shalom. Introductions are always nice, right? I was being introduced one time speaking and my wife nudged me and said, I'd like to meet that guy. So there's a lot more in a life than in an introduction. Uh, Everything was true though that we did spend about 25 years ministering in the Northeast, lived in downtown Troy, New York, and were able to pastor there some wonderful people. It's nice though now being in western Goochland County, when I hear a gunshot at night I know it's someone just jacking a deer and I'm not going to have to get a call that night about somebody from the church or anything. So it's, it's been really good to live where we are. We do grow mushrooms, I can explain that. It's, it's either what you think if you're on the right side of the law here or not what you think if you're thinking something else. So it's all, it's, it's all good what we do. They're very helpful. Sometimes there are portions of the Bible that I'll confess at times I've skipped over really quickly. You're looking for something more. You start off in one of Paul's letters and you know Paul's going to have these long three verse sentences of theology and I can't wait to get to those and to get to the meat of the middle of the letter. And we can miss the value of some of those things that we skip like the address of the letter. Just blow through those. They seem sort of common and familiar and repetitive. And if they're not read right, I get it. If you just blow through those like the address of an envelope, you're not going to get much. But let, let me analogize this to brisket. Right? Brisket is that cut of meat that nobody wanted. It was the tough stuff that you just kind of tossed unless you cooked it right. If you took your time with it and went really slow and broke up the stuff that would make you say, oh, it's not good then you could realize this is one of the most amazing portions I could have. I want you to to think a little bit that way about Paul's letters sometimes. And today especially we're going to focus on 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. It's the intro of that letter. While you turn there, um, I'll just kind of orient with a quick story that in, in 2014, there was a woman living in Long Island who got a call and someone said, hey, are, are you so-and-so, right? Her name was actually Susan Heifetz. And she said, are, she said yeah. I said, okay, at my address, which is this, I, I got a letter for you postmarked 1969. Remember, this is 2014. And she said, oh, I, I used to live there a long time ago. That was one of my first apartments. The person said, well, I don't know why it was so late, but let me, let me send it out to you. And they got it, and there was a letter that she recognized the handwriting of as, as her mother's. And she saw a lipstick kiss on the closure of the envelope, something her mother had done, and then she did with her kids. And she said it it became so precious and valuable. Why? Because from almost another time, with a profound love, even the outside of that envelope, the address, said something profound to her. So let's open mail that was for us nearly 2,000 years ago. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place upon the name of our Lord, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Gracious Father in heaven, thank you for your word. It would be enough if we could hear those words only today. And Lord, we thank you that you've called us to dig in a little more deeply. Would you please help speaker and hearer to the things that you have and to hold the things that you have for us. Lord, you know the situation, the mindset and setting of every human being in here better than we're aware of. So Holy Spirit, we ask that as you speak among us and in us, that we would hold those things as treasures. Um, let, Let speaker and place be forgotten at your will, Lord, but the things that you have for your people be held forever. In Christ's name. Amen. So here's the roadmap for today, the things that I'd like us to kind of pause and hit on. For me, it always helps if I know where I'm going so that I can be calm and a little more oriented in things. When preachers don't tell me where they're going, it drives me absolutely nuts. So here we go. First, we're going to talk about Paul, an apostle. We're going to talk about one man, his testament, the guy who writes this address to the church. Then we're going to talk about Christ, the foundation of all things, because even in that reading, if you take the number of times Paul calls on the Lord or names him, whether it's Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, our Lord, it's about 10 times in nine verses. So pretty significant that Paul says everything he's doing is saturated on Christ. And then the last thing we'll talk about is where he gives this intro for the church, called to be saints together, called to be sanctified together. Remember, or be aware, if you didn't know this, he's writing to a church that has a slew of problems. And and this focus is not what is distracting you in a moment from your calling. It's always the calling. There's something about getting us back to that Hoosiers-like moment where you, you get to the foundations. Remember the movie Hoosiers? This little team from nowhere is going to play on a stage that's bigger than they've ever seen. And, and Gene Hackman, who, who has a great voice, by the way. I started smoking cigars at 15 in hopes that I would get his voice. I stopped after about 17 when my father caught me. But that's a separate story. And he measures the distance of the floor to the hoop and the hoop to the foul line to teach them. I mean, this is the foundational stuff you need to focus on. So I'm, I'm not your pastor, I don't live among you, and can I tell you, it's awkward sometimes preaching. It's much easier and better to preach when you know the people. But here's what I know. Foundationally, you were called to be saints together by the Lord. And that'll be the third point on which we focus. So let's talk about Paul for a moment, if we can. First, called by Christ to serve. Echoes of Jesus praying, not my will, but thine. Paul recognizes that his life had taken a different direction because of the call of someone else. He'd filled the time before. He made calls in his own life. He decided to devote himself to his people, 
to their religion and to all the ways of it. Not only that, he was ambitious, he'll say, about his calling in that. He would become the chief persecutor of the Christian church early on because he saw it as a threat and a variation from the Judaism that he had committed to. And he was willing to travel to persecute people. He was willing to stand watch, it says, while other people stoned Stephen, the first martyr of the church. That's who Paul was until he received a call. Paul owns what everyone who knows the Lord Jesus Christ owns, that our lives were interrupted in the most benevolent way by the Lord Jesus. We were something else and we became something different. We had a different direction and reorienting meant we went a different way. We had a different heart that treasured different things. And being called in Christ began to both cleanse and refill our hearts with different things. He's, he's living before Christ, probably the worst nightmare I could imagine. The worst nightmare I imagine is not just things going wrong. That's, that's just stuff going wrong. It's when you're passionate about the wrong things and it's going smoothly. That's my nightmare. That, man, I'm just doing the wrong things and it's going great for me doing the wrong things. And you wouldn't know unless you get interrupted by Christ to say, whoa, that's not the direction I'm calling you to in your passion or your purity. And he gets reoriented totally. It's the nature of the gospel. The gospel is just not giving and getting. It's utterly undoing and unraveling before we give and get. It's taking what we were, which was utterly and completely unacceptable. You might remember in Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees this great vision of the Lord lifted on his throne. And he says, woe to me. I'm an unclean man who dwells among a people of unclean lives. I am undone. And the Hebrew there is like a ball of twine that's utterly unrolled. He doesn't say when he sees his life relative to God, Lord, I need to fix a couple things. And this is Isaiah, the prophet in ministry. We are people who are utterly undone and the gospel becomes our holy and blessed utterly undoing. We finally can see our undoneness and have the peace of being reoriented and rebuilt. He's also a servant. It's all over it because Christ is his Lord. He keeps saying again and again, my master, my Lord, the one over me, by his will I was called. It's very un-American, isn't it? To say someone gets to tell me what I do. Like, I, I'll just own, I'm politically, I'm a libertarian, so I'm that guy, right? Who, our, our symbol is an elephant or donkey, it's porcupine. That tells you everything you need to know about the Libertarian Party. And it's a very American, earthly idea. Nobody will tell me what to do but me. Paul lives in a completely different state in each stroke of his pen, each step of his sandals. I live to do the will of God. He's echoing Jesus who said, God's will, my Father's will is like bread to me. I need that to sustain me. Not, not my own will, not my own ambition. We, we have enough of those even as Christians. There's a humility that I believe makes girls and boys into men and women. It's reliance on the Lord. Men and women, adults who aren't reliant, they're often like petulant children. They just want their things. They say it better than they used to and they want more complex things than when they were children. But men who, and women who are reliant become men and women who are restrained, who have a purpose, who direct themselves differently. And to me, they're the most admirable men and women I've ever met are men and women who rely on their Lord constantly. Men and women who rely on the church constantly, who look at God's provisions as their best provisions. 
And that's Paul. He's called. He's a servant. And let's break down quickly what he's called to. He's called to be an apostle. It's a word that we don't really hear except in church context, right? I mean, when I was a kid, I grew up Catholic, and I thought apostles were the guys on the stained glass who had the halos behind their heads, and I thought, how terrible to have one of these guys as a roommate. You'd never be able to sleep at night because that constant dish glowing behind them. And then I realized, no, those were just put there to try to help us understand how these normal men and women had something more behind them. I thought, okay, but what does it mean? Because it's not in our language anymore except as that. But that's not what the Mediterraneans would have heard. The, the Jews and Greeks would have heard apostle and known the word before they knew it in a religious setting. Demosthenes, the, who, who writes uh, 300 years before the, the Bible, will talk about a ship that's scheduled to go from one place to another as being an apostolic ship. It just means sent with a specific purpose. That's what it means. Paul the apostle is Paul the guy who's been told where to go, what to do, with a particular purpose. It's part of all those provisions that this passage talked about that Christ gives us. Here's one of those great Pauline sentences that goes on for multiple verses. This is Ephesians 4, 11 through 14. It talks about this. It says, And he gave the apostles, he being Jesus, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wild wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. One sentence. you got to love the guy. Let's break down what he said Jesus gave us and what they do. The apostles. The apostles are there to start new works. They're like your church planters today who see what's missing and say, this shouldn't be missing, Lord. Can we go start this new thing so that there's not that space? The prophets. The prophets are anchored into the truth and calling to correct the people of God usually. So a lot of the times we think of prophets as guys who are doing the Nostradamus thing and telling the future. That, that's really the minority of prophecy in the Bible. The foretelling, but the foretelling, the here's the things you should be doing, that's normally the day in, day out of the prophets. They correct the people of God. Then there's evangelists. They're not talking to the people to correct the people of God. They're talking to bring good news to the people who aren't the people of God. Shepherds then take those people who've returned, whether it's church people who've wandered away from Jesus or new people coming in, and take care of them in their new life and help them to grow well together. And teachers help instruct them so they can realize I need to be one of these five things that's going on here or reflect them in different ways. Jesus has it all covered. Every station of life. He's not just concerned with the new work. He's not just concerned with correcting us when we're wrong. He's not just concerned with the people who don't know. He's not just concerned with the new ones. He's concerned at every level for all of us. The apostles, the prophets, the teacher. And Paul's called the new works. That's his thing. In Romans 15, he'll say, man, I have this ambition to build where, where no one else has built before in Christ. And he'll recognize something really impressive in Galatians 1.15, that this calling was to be set apart from his mother's womb. Sometimes we tell a human-centered narrative. It's okay. That's how we fill in the gaps of once upon a time to happily ever after or meh ever after is kind of how sometimes life feels. But when someone has understood their reorientation in Christ, you can hear it. 
They talk the way Paul does in those first nine verses. Jesus is all over it. People go, man, how do you do that? How are you so patient? Well, once before Jesus called me, I was this. And then when Jesus called me, I learned of grace. And in learning of grace, I learned not just to receive it, but to give it. And they can't help it. People who've reoriented their lives fully, who recognize Jesus overall, understand the way that they speak shows that their story is no longer theirs. What a thing to say to people. Your story, possessive pronoun, is not yours. It seems contradictory at first. But Paul has said, from the womb, Jesus did this and set me apart. Then he called me. Then he directed me and he brought me here. If you're not in the habit of telling the story as Jesus' story, you're probably either anxious, ambitious, or proud. You're probably either wondering, man, how do I fix my story? How do I make my story something more? But if the pen is in Jesus' hand, you can take your story and just say, this is where Jesus has a fool like me at this time. So let's talk secondly about that second point of Jesus. The numerical weight is so present, but more than that, Paul has shown it's the weight that guides and directs his life. Jesus the Christ, ten times. With God as salvation is his name, and his title is the Anointed One, the one that was waited for since Genesis 3.15, when it was promised that there would be one who was born only of woman, who would crush the serpent's head, though painfully be bit by its poisonous fangs. See, Adam and Eve didn't have a lot of Bible, right? They, they knew what God had told Adam, be fruitful and multiply. So, I mean, the application was pretty awesome. It wasn't, the Bible studies were repetitive, but they knew what they were doing. They knew when man and woman had what we called to our kids the special hug, were together, they, they would produce offspring. And they would have noted when they heard, this one will be born of woman. It would have been a head-scratcher for both Adam and Eve, and many, for about 2,000 years. But this promise in Genesis was God's plan A from the beginning and fulfilled in Christ. He's the foundation. He becomes clearer and clearer as we see the people longing to fill their lives with something because they recognize absence. It's clear when God says, we're going to destroy the world, everyone, by flood, but we're we're going to take the best people that I have and try to preserve them. And they fail immediately. Drunken nakedness is Noah's lot. And okay, it's not just better people that will save us. Maybe it's if we had a nation and he brings a king and he warns them, the king's just going to take your sons, send them off to war, turn your daughters into servants and raise your taxes. Still so true to this day, isn't it? And they realize it's not just a better nation that we can have. What if we had a better guy who led a whole people like the first prototype pilgrim Abraham? Oh my. The patriarchs did things that would be too scandalous to have appeared on Jerry Springer in the 80s and 90s. It's who they were. All of it just kept showing them what they did not need, what would not fix them. Nothing that came from man and woman would be the answer. And so they waited. And only in groping in their own darkness did things get clearer that the answer wasn't on this level. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, if nothing in this world satisfies you, it's not telling you to find something different in this world. It's telling you to find something outside of this world. And I've, I've butchered it. It's kind of a New American Ed translation of C.S. Lewis. But you get the idea. The failures called us to a foundation that was forever. In this passage, in verse 9, it tells us that we don't just belong to him. Christians get that. 
We're paid for by the Lord. He is the one who will bring us to him. But it tells us that we're meant to be with him as well, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. Sometimes we can make the moment of the cross, which is a great and pivotal moment, the only moment that we have with Jesus, and we just sort of go about our lives cleansed. But he says, no, no, no. You're meant to be with him all, all the time. A foundation and a fellowship. And he sustains us. Little words in this greeting and in other places like grace and peace. Peter will say, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. If we just took words like grace and peace that he gives us, how many of our prayers are answered by the promise that he's already given us grace and peace? Oh, Lord, help me to do this. Grace. Lord, this is difficult to get through. Would you help me? Grace. Lord, I have to be at a family reunion this weekend. Prayer for peace and grace. Like we, we have these things that we ask in almost all of them. Filter under two things that he has already promised. Right in the intro of the letter that he's given us. Grace. He's, he's given you and me grace. Peace in this world. He's given us peace. Now, if we make our fellowship, the newspaper, the politicians, our bank account, the stock market, our ambitions, and just about anything else besides Jesus, the absence gets clear right away. The peace turns to turbulence, and we start acting like Peter trying to walk on the water without the fellowship of Christ, and we begin to sink, and then Peter reaches out again sober and says, Oh, Lord, pull me in the boat and save me. He gives us grace and peace when we have fellowship. And yet in this fellowship with him, we wait. There seems to be an odd contrast where we're given these things and we're given fellowship. And he says, we wait for the revealing. Because right now we have fellowship with someone we can't see. It's like someone told me of their child who in the middle of the night during a thunderstorm was terrified and said, I want someone with me. And the father said, but I'm here with you. And he said, yes, Dad, but I, I, I know he said, Jesus is with you. He goes, yes, but I want someone with skin. And sometimes it feels like that until we have this waiting moment. So there's a satisfaction, but if you don't recognize also an emptiness in this world, even as a follower of Christ, you're not waiting well. It's not a satisfaction that makes me want to stay here forever. I've been in Christ 30 years plus. And only as I've gotten older have I realized heaven looks way better every day. I once used to think, oh, this religion, if I do the right things in the right ways, I'm going to have the right results, and I'll have this really nice cul-de-sac life here on earth. One, it's just not true. You can do what you think are the right ways for the right reasons, and it's still a hand grenade because of sin that's there. But when I think of the saints who have gone before me, men and women who I have known and loved, and I think of the revelation of Jesus in a way of fellowship I don't know, heaven only looks better as I grow as a saint in this world. It's not just a self-improvement. That, you know, that's our world's fantasy. That's why makeover shows are so popular, that you can change everything in 21 minutes with ads in between. It's a fantasy and it's not true, but to wait for Jesus tells us we're waiting for those things and that he will then sustain us during the in-between, but present us guiltless. You and I have not known guiltless in this life. In thought, word, and deed, you have not known it. You have moments where you were unaware of your sin, and you've mistaken those moments for guiltlessness. But I promise you, as sure as I am a sinner in a pulpit, we have never had a guiltless moment of pure mind, pure word, pure thought, pure action. And yet that's the promise. 
Wait with eagerness. Don't wait thinking Jesus will take something from you in this life. He's promised to sustain you in order that the fellowship only gets deeper. The last point, we've seen Paul the Apostle, Christ the Foundation, the church. I reminded you or informed you at the beginning, this is a church that's going to be like epically messed up. When you read the things, and I can remember being a brand new believer and reading about the church in Corinth and going, oh my goodness, like I thought I was the worst of sinners. These guys will make real hardcore sinners blush when you realize what they're doing. The, the immorality that I, I won't go into the detail of right now, but as you read through, you realize this is a very broken group of people. They're, they're broken where the haves ignore the have-nots in the church. They're broken where they've imported the sexual immorality of their day. And make no mistake about it, Corinth was sort of seen as the sexually immoral hub of the Mediterranean world. There was slang of that day to Corinthianize, and it meant to be sexually immoral. I wonder where in the world people would say was the locus of sexual... Oh, never mind. I don't want to think about that too long. Sexual morality. If, I mean, honestly, if, if porn had a belly button, it's the United States of America. We're the world's producers and consumers. If sexual confusion had a place that it got its mail sent to, it'd be USA. We live in the most pornified country on the planet, much like these people at Corinth lived. And we probably bring a lot of stuff into the church that shouldn't be named in the church, just like the people of Corinth. But where does Paul lead? He doesn't lead with, look, here's a list of all the things you're doing wrong. Here's a verse of why it's wrong. Sometimes we act like this, even as pastors, as friends, we can counsel poorly this way. Here's where he leads. I'm thankful always for you. Sometimes we are afraid to confess our sins because people need us with either brutality or truth without grace. Truth without grace is cruel. It just stares you naked under a spotlight. This is what's wrong with you. Do you see that? Yes, I see that. Okay, go and don't do that anymore. You leave injured. Truth with grace actually clothes you after those moments of harsh confession and being stared at in a way that nobody wants to be stared at. To say, now, the truth is you did those things. And the truth is you are beloved of God. And the truth is you have nothing you can lose or have been taken from you in this world. And you have nothing left to prove. You are loved. And I am thankful for you always. You leave a room very differently when you understand life like that. And so this church, who was probably a little nervous about Paul writing to them, knowing what's going on and who they are, instead finds themselves praised as something to be thankful for. It's easy to criticize, right? I've known people who will tell me what's wrong with the church in 25 years of ministry, in and outside the church, people who could tell me. And I, I would nod and go, that's right. And here's what I hate. And one, they were always shocked that I hated things about the church as a pastor. But then I would ask them the question that floored them. Tell me your solution. I don't really have one. I was raised by an Italian immigrant who ran a construction company in the 70s in New York, so I don't have to name any names of organizations, but let's just say they had a different way of dealing things with things in the concrete industry with Italian-Americans in the 70s in New York, right? And my father had to deal with a lot of folks who were from that world. And 
someone came to him and criticized uh, the way he was doing things one time, and he, and he said, what, what's your solution? The guy said, well, I don't have one. I just wanted to point this out. He goes, okay, here's the deal, and I want you to tell everybody else. If you ever come in here with a criticism again without a solution, you're immediately fired because you're no longer an ally to this company or to me. You can come in with any criticism as long as you have a solution for them. It takes something to be more than just critical. Anyone can see the problems. But to be able to see the problems and still encourage and still love, that echoes a Christ-likeness. Think, think about the church's problems. It's not just Corinth, Book of Acts. Think of the new church. What are their problems? Oh, they have money problems? where they're trying to decide who gets what. They have power problems over who will lead and they're competing. They have theology problems over how to work the old and the new covenants together. They have racial dissent where they're taking care of some people's widows but not other people's widows. They have all the problems of the human community. But it's not just the church. Go back to the foundation of the church, the apostles. How problematic are those guys to Jesus? Where Jesus has to say, how long must I suffer you, O you of little faith? Those are the foundational human leaders of the church. And yet Paul says, I am thankful that God has you in this position. And if you live in a place where you don't really want to be recognized for your faults, you're not living in a place that says, Jesus is my Lord and the church are my people. We can actually lead with our weaknesses in one place in this world and not worry about how it should hurt us, and that's the church, where we can say, Here, here's my struggles, here's who I am, and here's what I'm working on. Kings and priests who corrupted authority, patriarchs who are horrifyingly unpure, and our first progenitors, Adam and Eve, hiding themselves in the creation they were meant to enjoy in fellowship with God. Probably a good Sunday school student who's paying attention should be able to realize even the best saints are horrible sinners who are in need of grace all the time. And it's because of that that Paul says, I am thankful for this. Here's what Jesus says he does for his church, just so we can be encouraged, sort of that reclothing after we talk about, boy, the preacher really told us how horrible men and women are today. Here's, here's the pieces that I hope will encourage you. He calls them in verse 5, I'm uh, sorry, uh, right away, he calls them sanctified. You were made holy. You were made to be holy, because that's the image of God in you. And you can continue to be holy in Christ. John will say, if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful, he's always going to do it, and just, it's the right thing, to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You, you can bring those things out. He says, you're enriched in Christ Jesus, in verse 5, in all speech and language. Consider your growth. I don't care if you've been in Christ a short time or a long time. When you had that reorientation, can you see that your path changed? I'll, I'll tell you the first guy who recognized I was a Christian, and I'll tell you why. There was a guy who had uh, done our family wrong, stolen a bunch of stuff. He was on coke and just was stealing things from people who had loved him and let him into their lives because he needed to pay for his coke habit. No one knew it at the time. Then it all came out, and we all collectively kind of just cut the guy off uh, and let him be. And I remember he left his bike at my house during those years, and I thought, oh, yeah, I can't ever get my money back, but I'm just going to smash this bike up and just have a little therapy day once, you know, and just beat it up with a bat. And then I become a Christian. And I walk out in the garage, and the Spirit said to me, you broke that guy's bike. And I thought, wait, wait a minute, Holy Spirit, you must have missed a chapter or an episode in here, because that guy stole more than me, that bike. And again, as clear as I could hear it, you broke 
that man's bike. I thought, oh, this faith is gonna be awful, but let's go do the right thing. I loaded the bike in the car, I took it to the bike shop, paid a ridiculous amount to have it all repaired, and drove to this guy's house who no one in our circles had talked to for years. And I pulled up and said, hey man, here's your bike, you left this at my house. And I just wanted to make sure you got this. And I talked to him for all of about three minutes and he goes, you are different, what happened to you? And I thought, oh, it must be the aroma and radiance of the Lord. I said, well, how do you, how do you tell I'm different? He goes, you have not sworn in the entire four minutes that we've talked, and I never knew you to be a guy who could say a sentence in the English language without peppering it with a ton of profanity. You were just always that guy. Okay, I wanted something a little more profound, but my speech had changed. This is how I was enriched in all speech and all knowledge. When you know him, you should know what to say and how to say it a little bit differently. Can you mark the differences in your life? It will be an encouragement to you and to others. My, my wife will say to me sometimes, some days I believe the gospel because I knew you before you were in Christ. I saw you, and, and honestly, she saw me. We met at my worst, lowest moments, and I converted shortly after that. She's like, I, I knew exactly who you were, and I watched this change, and there's no accounting for it except for that. It's an encouragement to you and others that you're enriched, sustained, and secured. I don't know where you are today, but I know this. You've had a hard week, and there are things you are unsure if you can get through ahead in the next week. But we are sustained and secured in this time. It may not always be the solutions we want, but Jesus will bring us to the places that we need. The recipients of grace and peace and in fellowship with Christ, called to be saints together, Paul recognizes, I think, as he sets up the church at Corinth for the rest of his letter, here's the two things that will tear you apart. If you're not living sanctified, if you start to love sin, you will have problems being the saints, being the church. Everybody struggles with sin. It's pretense if we say we don't have sin. The Bible will actually say you lie if you say you have no sin. Every saint struggles with sin. We just don't marry it. That's the difference between us and the world. We can be the ones who wrestle and are still part of the church, called to be saints together. There are moments with an Italian immigrant dad and growing up very isolated, rural, and very Mediterranean, not realizing the rest of America did not grow up this way. I remember going to friends' houses and they ate dinner in front of a television and I just constantly looked at them like, but, but where are your aunts and cousins? Why are they not eating here? Why are we not all sitting together? Why aren't people involved in each other's lives loudly and aggressively? This is very weird to me. There are moments that I read this Mediterranean book in the New Testament, written by Mediterranean, for Mediterranean people, and I think, oh boy, we're gonna have trouble with this one in America because this isn't the way we are. Called to be saints together. It's not how much distance can you have. I was really tempted to say, hey, church, why don't we all move up to the first four rows? And my wife nudged me and goes, no, it's, it's not your church. And then I was gonna make a joke about social distancing, and I said, no, that's probably not the thing to do either. But called to be together, probably to these people, wasn't a matter of what does together mean. It was re-choosing that family. They were probably always well together with their family. So many people involved in their lives, every cousin, aunt, uncle, brother, all together as often as you could have them together. But now different, reoriented. Paul called Sosthenes his brother. The father reorients us as his. And so it reorients us as us together. 
under one father, we become one family. We can't deny that ever, just like I can't deny my Italian relatives ever, right? They're, they're always going to be my family, and in that life, this is even more profound. And you can say, okay, I get it, Ed, we're, we're adopted. That's the language the Bible often uses. But it's, but it's more than that as well, isn't it? We're adopted and called in because we are not like him. But in the process of being called, we are seated with his nature. And in the most amazing thing ever, the adopted becomes the genetic relative. It's unlike the earthly adoption, where we're adopted and in 1 John 3, 9, it says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep sinning because he's been born of God. That word seed, it's the Greek word sperma. Um, you don't even have to be a Greek scholar. I had to take three years, pretty sure I know what that one means. It means that we've been seeded and encoded with his genetics, that the adopted becomes the true and biological son as well as the adopted son and daughter. We, we become like him not just brought in. And under the Father, we become true family. And more. We're not just related, we have common purpose that allows us to pull together and do things together. It's the body under the sun. Paul, in what I think is the greatest piece of Christological theology in Colossians 1, will say he's the head of the body, the church. The head tells the body what to do. Your body responds to the purposes of your head, the intentions of your head. Most people think about what they do. I realize if you're like, you know, 17 to 21, you may be going, wait, what is that? But you think first, right? We're not amoebas. It's not just stimulus response. It's stimulus, pause, response. When I was in high school, there was a student named Mike Maloney, and Mike was in a wheelchair. Uh, he had cerebral palsy. His motions were painful and spastic constantly. He could barely speak or drink water without spilling it on himself. Here's the worst thing about this disease. His brain was fine. His body parts, the tissue, the sinew, the bone, was all fine. The problem was the nerves that connected those two things. They wouldn't work for him. They, they, they wouldn't move together, and so it was painful for him to live and horrible to even watch. Sadly, this is what the church presents to the world and to itself on so many days. The head is perfect, tells us the will to do together. We have the gifts that were meant to be given for the church to carry out these missions, and we move with a painful spasticity because we don't have the connections we're meant to have to one another in the Lord. It's the nerve tissue that's bad. So we're not just called to be sons and daughters and made sons and daughters. We're called to be on mission together under the sun. When he's preeminent, our churches start to move together. So this is a challenge for you as the church and the one that gets really simple. You may have plans. You think, oh, this isn't big enough. I wish the church were doing this. I wish we had this smaller program. Get involved in whatever church is doing together. Just start jumping in and doing the work of being the people of God together in whatever your church is doing. See if you can have an attitude of not criticizing, but engaging for the next quarter at your church. When the church says, we're going to do this, we're going to do it. When I got saved, I was a complete zealot, and my pastor said, we should lock you away for about a year, and then you'll be a normal Christian. I said, okay, let's start that locking now. You know, it was just like everything. And if the church doors were open, 
my wife and I were there. We lived about an hour from the church. We were there Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday prayer service, because man, we were just committed. Just try living committed and positive about your church for one quarter and see if it doesn't suddenly change you and the church that you're in by doing that. Identified as a family under the Father, a common mission under the Son. The last thing I want to share that the church is, we're purified together in the Spirit. We become what the Bible says is the temple of the Holy Spirit. What was the temple for? The temple was for worship and cleansing. That's why you went. You went to give sacrifice for your sins, and you went to celebrate that God was so great. And, and when you're lost in worship, it's amazing how the world around you just melts and doesn't really matter. And when you're forgiven, it's amazing how joyful the heart can be. It's not just identity, and it's not just task. We constantly, under this God who's brought us together, are made purer and purer. And Paul ends where a good leader always ends in Christ. He calls us where he has walked like a good spiritual Sherpa and then points us where he hasn't gone so that we can find Jesus. 25 years of pastoral ministry taught me something. I can't really help people except by pointing them to somebody else. Someone comes to you for counseling, it's very humbling to say, wow, that's a really big problem. I can't help you, but Jesus can, so let's talk about him, read the Bible, and pray. It's humbling, and it also means you won't fall into a place where you have to be someone's personal Jesus, or where they have to see you as a personal Jesus. You're just a Sherpa who's pointing to it. You remember what Paul says? The Apostle Paul, right? The chief theologian of Romans, the first apostle, the great missionary hero to the Western world. And what does he say? Follow me as I follow Christ Jesus. Think what the contrapositive of that statement is. Don't follow me where I don't follow Christ Jesus. That is embedded negatively in that statement. Paul doesn't say, follow me, I'm Paul. Follow me when I'm following Jesus. So church, let me leave where Paul leaves, a broken church who has so many issues, but so much promise. He will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as you call us the church, I pray you would help us to specifically hear, see, and reorient how we have been made one under your fathership. I pray for the unity of this congregation, that you would draw them together ever tighter. Father, we also pray for our body to be responsive to the head and that we would find a grace and a strength and a poise as we move on mission together. And I pray for that to be reinvigorated among the saints here at South City. And Lord, as we become that temple pressed brick by brick beside one another, knowing one another, would you help us to always be thankful but always be working towards the purity that your spirit is famous for. We're holy is not his first name, but his nature that he shares with us. Lord, there is so much we don't know, but nothing you don't know. Lord, there is so much we lack, but nothing that we lack in you. Would you take all the anxieties and ambitions in this room not of you, and would you spoil them before our very eyes, that we could become men and women who are reliant on you, your word, and your body. In Christ's name we ask these things. Amen.